you have a Bible, open it up to Revelation 4. We're continuing our study on prayer, and this is the, as far as we can tell, the second to last lesson that we're going to have on this uh, short topical series. And then we'll be returning to Second Peter. Uh, but if you do have your Bible, turn to Revelation 6, and then we will be reading that, and then we'll pray. Revelation 6, 9 through 11. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the scriptures that you've given us, Lord, which reveal who you are to us. Uh, t- teach us about your character and help us to understand uh, your expectations for us, Lord. I pray that you would honor our time of study here today and that you would help us to learn more about you so that we may honor you with our lives, Lord, and help us to grow in appreciation for the salvation that you have accomplished uh, on our behalf in Jesus Christ. Uh, we thank you for all you do. In your son's name I pray. Amen. Well, as I mentioned a few weeks back in our small group, I have recently had a conversation with some Christians about, uh, this was before the uh, final election for our president. Uh, we, I had a conversation about uh, Hillary Clinton falling into the side of a van and what is the appropriate Christian response to Hillary Clinton falling into the van? Uh, as you know, there's some kind of concern that perhaps maybe she's, she was suffering, could be still suffering from some sort of significant illness. And as you know, her, uh, her fall being captured by the news was uh, an inopportune time time for her, to say the least. And so as Christians, as we think about that kind of situation, we interact with that kind of event, uh, what is the appropriate response to that sort of thing? Now, um, the, the kind of discussion that I was having with these uh, individuals centered around the impropriety of rejoicing when your enemy falls. So one of the things that you find as you read the scriptures is the scriptures give us a bit of a warning uh, that we should be cautious in how we respond when people to whom we consider enemies uh, suffer. And one of those cautions has to do with the nature of our response. And so I think there's many uh, people who do not consider Hillary Clinton to be an ally in the gospel, uh, an ally when it comes to many of the issues that we hold to, to be dear, uh, there, there may be a temptation for many when you see uh, a person uh, suffering a significant uh, uh, physical episode, as we saw with her. There may be a slight temptation to uh, smile, laugh, rejoice, maybe mock, uh, may, maybe be overly joyed that maybe perhaps this um, uh, sign of physical weakness on her part may be uh, an indication that... Um, 
people won't vote for her. And maybe maybe if you are the kind of person who find voting for her to be undesirable, that may be a, an opportunity for ample rejoicing. But one of the things that Proverbs says to us in Proverbs twenty four seventeen through 18, uh, God says, Do not rejoice when your enemy falls, and let not your heart be glad when he stumbles. Uh, lest the Lord see it and be displeased and turn away his anger from him and presumably turn it on you. So here we have an example of someone whom I uh, I would consider to be an enemy of the gospel falling. And the Bible is very clear that it is a very inappropriate reaction to uh, laugh and to be overly joyed at her fall in that way. Uh, however, now as I, I'm continuing this conversation with this group of individuals, I think you can all agree that it would be inappropriate to laugh and mock and point and uh, be exceedingly glad at this uh, series of events for her. But then what is the appropriate Christian response? How do you, how do you respond to that sort of thing? And, and I think uh, that while there's dangers on the one end of being overly happy at that event... Uh, there may be dangers that w- we face that are on the opposite end of things. And so the solution that was put forward at that point was, well, we sh- as Christians, we should be merciful people. We shouldn't be you know, happy when Hillary falls. Well, how should we respond? Well, maybe we should pray for her that she gets better. So what do you think about that? What kind of response do you, do you have to that information? Now, I, I want you to know, I, I, do, uh, I do sympathize with this spirit of this conclusion, but in many ways, I find that conclusion, the, the conclusion that, you, you know, you don't laugh and mock and point. I agree, you don't laugh and mock and point, but then the conclusion, well, maybe you should pray that she gets better. I, I find that to be problematic, uh, equally problematic in a variety of other ways. So certainly the desire to be merciful and to pray mercifully is a good and very Christian desire, uh, yet there's also other considerations uh, namely, the consideration of justice. So, uh, regardless of um, you, you know everything you want to say about American politics, and I understand that things are uh, fairly complicated whenever you step into that subject in general. But one thing I think that you we can agree upon is that uh, as Christians, the Bible has a lot to say about when. Uh, uh, at what stage of human life a person becomes a person. And so as you consider, you know, the influence that Hillary Clinton has as it relates to uh, just her prioritization and concern for issues of abortion on demand, I think, uh, you know, if we if we don't bury our heads in the sand and we face the, the reality that uh, we have killed almost 60 million babies, since Roe vs. Wade. And here you have a candidate who is actively uh, promoting Planned Parenthood, actively seeking to increase that number. I think that there's there ought to be something in us which would... Uh, you look at a, a woman who has those sorts of prior, priorities, who cares nothing for a biblical understanding of the family, who cares nothing about the life of the unborn... I think, you know, for those two considerations alone, we ought to approach this subject somewhat tentatively. So when you think about uh, uh, praying for Hillary that she'll get better, uh, we also, we have to, you know, factor into that sort of uh, prayer the knowledge that if she gets better, she's going to be doing everything she possibly can to kill more babies. 
Okay, so that's something that's rele- relevant to this sort of discussion. Uh, and I've often, you know, I think a comparable example that's not nearly as bad as abortion, although we may be tempted to think it is, would be praying for Hitler to get better in World War II. Hitler killed, gassed, murdered, experimented on uh, six million Jews. And so, I, I, you know, there's several reactions that you could have to the news that Hitler's gotten sick, Right? Uh, one of them would be the kind of reaction the scripture prohibits in Proverbs of rejoicing when your enemy falls. Uh, you know, I think we should be cautious in how we we, can, we conceive of the news that Hitler's gotten sick. Uh, but then there, there does seem to be something strange about the thought of praying that Hitler would get better. If by praying that Hitler gets better we understand that that means more Jews die. So, I mean, I think if we really wrestle with those kind of realities, then we're left wondering, well, what do we do in that kind of situation? How do you approach that kind of situation? There is clearly evil in the world that is significant and ghastly. Uh, There's all all sorts of forms of evil in the world. And how do we as Christians uh, promote and, and embrace a spirit of mercy, but then also understand issues that are related to righteousness. And so as we're thinking about this subject of prayer, it would do us well to spend some time uh, thinking about what it means to pray righteously. And I can think of very few passages which are uh, more relevant to this sort of discussion than Revelation 6, 9 through 11, which I'm going to read again. Uh, Revelation 6, 9 through 11, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little while longer till the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were about to be killed as they themselves have been. So as we consider this subject of praying righteously, we would do well to put some uh, thought into passages such as this. And I know that when uh, you bring up passages like this, there is often among Christians a very sort of uncomfortable reaction. Uh, I've, I've, I've talked about this kind of passage with enough people to know that this seems to be the standard the common reaction that Christians have when you encounter a passage like this. And this is one of the things to realize is that there's many prayers like this in the Bible. Uh, We typically call them imprecatory prayers, which are just prayers related to the uh, asking God for judgment of some sort. Uh, But then one of the things to realize is that, uh, you know, as, as many Christians encounter this kind of passage, I know that we feel often a significant amount of discomfort. And I want you to know right off the bat that that's always a bad thing. Okay, so whenever you approach a passage in the Bible and you feel nervous and you feel uncomfortable, uh, that's a sign that you need to wrestle with what's there and make your peace with it, right? So, I mean, I think it is a good goal uh, that Christians have no problem passages, I think it's a good goal that as we approach the scriptures, we want to joyfully embrace all that's in here and have no 
passages which you just kind of uh, feel uncomfortable and then you functionally you're tempted to ignore. Uh, you know, if you're going to take that approach, you might as well just rip it out of the Bible and then never address it again. But I, I do think it would be wrong to take the Thomas Jefferson approach uh, to the scriptures where you just cut out the verses that you don't like and and keep the ones that you do like. Uh, but if we're all agreed on that, then I think we, as you read a passage like this, and, and if we're tempted to feel uncomfortable, we need to interact with that. Now, one of the things to realize as we try to interact with this passage itself is that, as I've said, this passage is not unique. There's a lot of passages that sound a lot like this. Uh, so, for instance, what do you do with many of the prayers of David? Uh, one example, I'm just going to give one, and we won't belabor this point, but one example is of Psalm uh, 3, 4 through 8. Uh, David says, I cried out, cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill, uh, Selah. I lay down and slept. I woke up again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, uh, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to you. Your blessings be on your people, Selah. So, you know, there's, there's many passages which seem to be... Um, understanding that God is a God of justice and a God of righteousness. And uh, there's many examples we could find throughout the scriptures of people praying for justice, praying for righteousness, recognizing these things as a good priority. And so as we interact with a passage like this, uh, if we're to pray righteous, I think the first thing that we need to realize is that we need to functionally be righteous. So when you come to a passage like this, the temptation might be to take this passage, ignore it, have an uncomfortable reaction. Uh, but then one of the things to realize is that that isn't the Christian response. Uh, and that might be a response that we're tempted to make because maybe we don't know what's going on in passages like this. Now, I, I think when we read passages along these lines, we don't know what to make of them. Uh, we typically understand that the prayers of the martyred saints uh, don't seem to be very nice prayers, right? So as you, as you think about this kind of prayer, it doesn't, it doesn't strike you as a nice thing to pray, uh, pray towards anyone. Uh, how long, O Lord, holy and true, before you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? I mean, it doesn't seem nice. I mean, that certainly wouldn't be uh, praying for Hillary to get well, would it? Uh, so as you as you interact with that sort of thing, uh, it it wouldn't. You're you're. I think we're forced to wrestle with two two realities. One, it doesn't seem to be very nice to pray that way. In some sense, it may feel wrong to pray that way, uh, but yet it's in the Bible. So how, what do we go from there? What do we conclude from there? Well, I think often what people conclude is, hey, maybe one day God will get me there, right? So I don't know how to pray like that. I don't really. And there's obviously a sense in which none of us are dead, and so we can't pray that exact prayer right now. I understand that. Uh, but then there, there does seem to be something that is um, uncomfortable about it, and you say, hey, it doesn't seem to be very nice, but it's in the Bible. I don't really know what to do with it, but one day I'll figure it out, and God will get me there, right? Uh, so uh, as a result, we conclude that we don't see how it could ever be right to pray such a thing this side of heaven, but then we trust that when we die, God will get us there. Uh, what's the problem with that? 
Well, the problem with that is that the text loses any instructive value for us. So it was put there for a reason. It wasn't put there for us to just kind of uh, feel awkward and then uh, ignore and then hope that maybe one day God will figure out how to get us from here to there, right? So it's put there so that we have an example of of what a righteous prayer would look like. And so one of the things I think we need to wrestle with is uh, in order to be faithful, I think we need to not simply ignore this text and hope and, and text like it and hope that uh, one day God will get us there and uh, but we need to figure out why why the martyred saints pray the way they do, okay? So why do the martyred saints pray the way they do? And then we need to learn to do the same. Uh, so in, in order to do that, in order to kind of bridge the gap, I, the first thing we realize is that uh, the martyred saints' prayers are the way that they are because the martyred saints are perfected. Does that make sense? So we know that when we see Jesus, we're going to be like him. We know that when we die, uh, you know, the sanctification God's working in our own lives will be complete. Uh, we know that we, we have a great hope that one day we won't be as sinful as we are and that one day our sanctification is going to be complete. And one of the things to realize about the martyred saints at this point is that they're no longer um, trying to grow in their progressive sanctification, Right? So when you consider the martyred saints, they're completely perfect. Their righteousness has become perfected in that way. Uh, so one of the things to realize is that if when we become perfectly righteous, we would pray like this, then we need to figure out what is it that's keeping us from thinking that this kind of prayer is a good thing. Does that make sense? Because one day we won't think it's a bad thing. Maybe sometimes we're tempted to think today that that's a weird thing to pray or a harsh thing to say or an unloving thing to say or an unmerciful thing to pray. Uh, but then all those temptations will be removed when we die. So in order to bridge the gap, what we need to do is f- uh, figure out how to get from here to there, right? Now, uh, when, when, when I say in order to pray righteously, we need to be righteous, I'm just commenting on the reality that when you have individuals, when you have Christians who are perfectly righteous, they pray this way, there must be uh, something that they know that maybe we're tempted to ignore. And so that, uh, the first thing to say is that in order to pray righteous, you need to be righteous. Now, one thing about the gospel is that the gospel is the good news that sinful humans can both receive a righteous standing apart from their own works. So when we talk about um, the, the good news of the gospel, the good news is the good news that... Uh, I, as a sinful human being, can gain a, a righteousness outside of myself, uh, apart from anything that I can do. And so the good news is the good news that Jesus came to die uh, on my behalf and give me his righteousness. And so functionally, there's the great exchange. When God sees me, if I am a Christian, God doesn't see my sinful list of failures and wrongs. What he sees is Jesus's righteousness and so in, in, in as a result of that he's able to declare me who is a sinner guilty or he's able to declare me innocent on the basis of what jesus has done so the gospel is uh, the good news that sinful humans can both receive a righteous standing before god as a free gift uh, but then also it's the good news that uh, sinful humans can be transformed in such a way that they walk in a righteous manner uh, so when you when you consider this, and the goal of the Christian life is to grow in righteousness. Uh, the goal of the Christian life is to 
grow grow in such a way by the Spirit, uh, through grace, uh, by faith, in such a way that your practical righteousness is learning to match your positional righteousness. Uh, And the great hope is that one day when we die, those two things will match. Right? They're never going to match this side of heaven, but we're... But we ought to, if we if we love God, we love the things He loved. We ought to be growing in that, and we know that if the Son sets you free, you're free indeed. But we know that there's a, a divine miracle that takes place in the new birth, such that Jesus takes out my heart of stone; He gives me a heart of flesh. Uh, before I didn't want to love Him, I didn't want to walk in His ways. But then, if He saved me, He's uh, transformed my heart. He's given me a new responsive heart. He's given, uh, he's given me the Holy Spirit who's come to live inside of me uh, to change my natural uh, desires and affections away from being his enemy to now wanting to love and serve him. And such a, the, the fundamental prayer of the Christian life is the confession that Jesus is Lord and the fundamental uh, commitment that a Christian makes upon Confessing that is that they're uh, they're acknowledging the reality that Jesus is Lord and they're going to walk in that. And so as you as you think about the goal of the Christian life, the goal of the Christian life is to grow and grow in practical righteousness. So when we think about this subject of praying righteously, uh, the first thing I think we really ought to interact with is in order to pray righteously, we must be righteous. Now, that point, uh, uh, the point being communicated here is somewhat straightforward. Selfish people. Pray how? Selfish people pray selfishly, right? Uh, worried people pray worriedly. Merciful people pray mercifully. Righteous people pray righteously. So in order to pray righteously, we have to understand righteousness, value righteousness, pursue righteousness, and be growing righteous. In short, a righteous person will pray righteously. So foundationally, as you're looking at the passage, you ought to realize that Perfectly righteous people pray this way. So in order to pray this way, we need to be righteous. We need to understand uh, how it is that they are praying the way that they're praying. Uh, Secondly, in order to pray righteously, we need to understand the character of God. So uh, here you have the martyred saints in heaven crying out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true. Uh, when they make their prayer for just uh, judgment and justice, uh, they are doing so on the basis of their understanding of the character of God. When the martyred saints ask God to avenge their blood, they do so by appealing to God's character. So one of the questions we ought to ask is, who is God? The text gives us three descriptions. One, he is the sovereign Lord. Two, he is holy. Three, he is true. So our question for our time here today is, why appeal to these characteristics? Why appeal to the characteristics of God being the sovereign Lord, uh, the, uh, the characteristic of Him being holy, and the characteristic of being true? Well, first, the fact that God is the sovereign Lord means that He can right every wrong whenever He chooses to do so. So when you think about the evil that is present in the Lord, or present in the world, uh, one of the things to realize is that God is not limited in any way uh, in his ability to fix every wrong instantaneously right now if he choose, chose to do so. Uh, you know, As you look at the world, often people are criticizing God at this point. How can a God who can fundamentally uh, change things let things happen? Well, one thing to realize about that is you don't know how much evil he does prevent already. 
but then another thing to realize is that we do believe in the kind of God who fundamentally can fix it all, and he doesn't choose to do so. Uh, uh, not in our timetable often. And so when, uh, so why would the martyred saints appeal to this aspect of God's character? Well, they're doing so because they have confidence that they are serving the kind of God who can right every wrong, who can fix every evil. Now, uh, one of the things to realize is that as we're thinking about this subject itself, there really is great evil and suffering in the world. Uh, a lot of which is, you know, we're sheltered from or isn't really personal to us uh, in many ways. Uh, I could give you past historical example. I'm going to give you a few. Uh, but then there's also present evil as well. But uh, there's a great evil and suffering in the world, a lot of which we're sheltered from. So Hitler killed six million Jews. I mean, just think about that. Just just reflect on uh, what it would have been like to be... Uh, Put on the train to one of the concentration camps and gassed in the concentration camps or experimented upon or casually just shot because uh, you were deemed to be less than human. There's great evil in the world. Uh, International Labor Organization estimates that there are 20.9 uh, million victims of human trafficking globally. I know that many of us don't have uh, very much experience with these sorts of things, but I just... I want you to know that there, there is real evil in the world. There's uh, another historical example. The, you, I know that we're, we're used to talking about Hitler, the Holocaust. What about the Rwandan genocide of 1994? So the Rwandan genocide was a truly dramatic and horrifying event. It's one of the most brutal acts of murder ever committed. Here's some, some information about that. Over the course of 100 days from April 6th to July 16th, 1994, an estimated 800,000 to uh, 100 or 800,000 to 1 million Tutsis and some moderate Hutus were slaughtered in the Rwandan genocide. A recent report has estimated that the number was uh, to be close to 2 million. During this period of terrible slaughter, more than six men, women, and children were murdered every minute, every hour of every day. Uh, this brutally efficient killing was uh, maintained for more than three months. Uh, there are between 300,000 to 400,000 survivors of this genocide. Between 250,000 and 500,000 women were raped during the 100 days of the genocide. Up to 20,000 children were born to the women as a result of this. Uh, more than 67% of women who were raped during 1994 during the genocide were affected with HIV or AIDS. In many cases, this resulted from a systemic and planned use of rape by HIV plus men as a weapon of genocide. So as you think about information like this, uh, you, we ought to realize that God God is concerned about these things. And I know that we don't interact with some of these things uh, in a very personal way, but I think the more that you know about the world, the more that you realize that there there is much horrendous evil in the past and still ongoing in the world today. Um, there's great evil in the world we try to ignore. There's been 60 million abortions since Roe vs. Wade. 60 million, that's, that's 10 holocaust. Um, you know, do we really believe that these are human beings created in the image of God who are being killed every day? We're, we're 10 times worse than Nazi Germany if we really believe that human life begins at conception. I think we think that we're so enlightened. I think we think that we're so advanced as a society. But that's in America. 60 million deaths 
uh, we could show videos. It's it's no it, it's no less ghastly than what Hitler's doing. Okay, sixty million abortions since Roe vs. Wade. Uh, there's also great evil in the world that's committed against us. I mean, why is it that uh, Christians in our nation are one of the most despised groups that there are? I mean, just just think about uh, the kind of conversation that's had almost at every single point in our culture. And one of the uh, one of the things you realize is that uh, Christians obviously aren't getting a fair shake as far as those things. Uh, go, uh, it's almost a pejorative to be considered a Christian. I think increasingly, it'll, it'll be uh, increasingly considered so as the days go on. And so I, I'm sure that many of you have interactions with family members, with friends, with loved ones, with relative, relatives who think that you're absolutely nuts. I'm sure that many of us have had interactions with individuals and been slandered, been persecuted, um, been called all sorts of unfair names, not uh, listened to very well. Uh, and I don't want to minimize those things. So I think you, you say, well, you compare that to some of the stuff you mentioned. It doesn't seem to be uh, significant. But one of the things to realize is that the Bible rel- uh, relativizes all human suffering this side of uh, Christ's return as light and momentary afflictions. And so whatever... Uh, whatever uh, Form the suffering takes is very real to the people experiencing it. And so I don't particularly like being called names. I don't particularly like uh, having uh, being slandered. I don't particularly like losing relationships. I don't particularly like having people mis- misrepresent what I'm saying. I, I don't particularly like having people not seem to be able to hear what I'm saying and interact with a, what I'm saying in a fair way. I don't particularly like having people uh, judge my motives falsely. And I know that you don't either. Right? And so these things are significant. There's great evil in the world that's committed against us. And then there's great evil in the world that we commit. I mean, when we, if, we're, if we're honest with the state of our hearts and, uh, you know, just the, the sorts of things that we're tempted to overlook, how often are, are we petty and how often are we vengeful and how often are we unloving and self-centered and, and don't treat people as we ought to treat them? How often are we... Uh, tempted to uh, do what we can do in order to abuse other people and take advantage of them. So there's great evil in the world. And one of the things to realize is is that God is concerned with evil. So the fact that God is a sovereign Lord means that he can right every wrong whenever he chooses to do so. But then the fact that God's holy means that God's concerned with all those things that I just mentioned. He doesn't just overlook those things. Uh, you know, it's those things that put Jesus on the cross, right? I mean, if evil were just some trivial thing, something that we should just ignore and overlook and, oh, it's not a big deal and everything else. And, uh, you know, Jesus wouldn't have had to die. Jesus wouldn't have had to die on the cross if these things didn't matter. Uh, so the fact that God is holy means that God can't simply just overlook these things. Uh, God can't simply just uh, wink at sin and then, you know, make everyone healthy and make everyone happy and take away all the pain and fix all the boo-boos. No, there has to be a sacrifice for these things, and that sacrifice was Jesus coming to die on the cross for us. Uh, Finally, the fact that God is true means that God will deal with it all, right? 
So the fact that God's sovereign means he can fix it. The fact that God is holy means he's concerned to fix it. Uh, The fact that God is true means he's going to fix it all completely at some point, right? There is a coming day when the sacrificial lamb will return as the conquering lion. And what a terrible day that's going to be for those who do not know the Lord. Uh, You know, I'd encourage you to read the descriptions uh, of the conquering lion when he comes in vengeance and fury to judge the inhabitants of the earth, uh, you know, all the kings of the earth and all of the mighty men on the earth, uh, those people who we think are so significant and so powerful and so influential, uh, they're going to fall on their face and pray that the mountains fall on them in order that they may escape uh, the great day of, the, of wrath because the day of the Lamb has come and who can stand against Uh, this sovereign Lord who is coming to fix every wrong. And so as we think about um, this subject of praying righteously, we we learn that in order to pray righteously, we really need to understand the character of God. Uh, The the kind of God we serve is the kind of God who is no doubt merciful and compassionate, uh, extending his steadfast love for generations to those who uh, fear him and keep his commandments. But then... Uh, this same God is the, is the kind of God who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So when we think about the character of God, we, we understand that God is a God who, who cannot and will not simply overlook all the evil that is in the world. Uh, and so the third thing I think we need to do in order to pray righteously is embrace a biblical view of justice. As the martyred saints are are uh, praying before the Lord, they say, how long before you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? So one of the things we need to realize is that as we're thinking about this subject and thinking about this subject of uh, praying uh, righteously, we, we need to realize that, as I've said, God can't simply overlook evil. Uh, there is a day coming where Uh, Men will be judged on the basis of their deeds. Uh, We're instructed in the meantime never to avenge ourselves. But what do we do? We leave it to the wrath of God. Uh, For his written vengeance is whose? God's. He will repay, says the Lord. And so if we embrace a biblical view of justice, one of the things we realize is that God can't simply overlook these things forever. Uh, God, it, it's, uh, it's only God's grace and his mercy uh, and the fact that he's abounding in steadfast love that uh, the rain falls on the just and on the unjust and the fact that uh, man, sinful humanity and the rebellion against God, they can, we can continue in our rebellion for years and years and years uh, and yet justice doesn't happen instantaneously. That's only grace. When Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, They were cast out of Eden, away from the presence of the Lord. They were told that uh, in the day they ate of the fruit, they would die. Uh, The fact that their death didn't happen instantaneously was an act of mercy. Uh, You know, as we think about our life, we ought to understand ourselves to be death row inmates. Every breath that we take is mercy and grace that we don't deserve. You know, and, and that mercy and grace had to be paid for in some way. And that mercy and grace cost Jesus his life on the cross And so when we think about embracing a biblical view of justice, what kind of God would he be to overlook the Rwandan genocide? 
I mean, if you were one of the victims of that, what kind of God would uh, God be just to simply overlook it and not really want to interact with it and not really want to deal with it? Well, you would say that that would be a God who maybe is more like we're tempted to be than uh, the kind of God presented in Scripture. What kind of people would we be if we saw someone uh, being abused in public and just stood and watched? Didn't do anything about it. So I couldn't be bothered to help. Yes, I see you being mugged there, but I'm busy. I don't really want to deal with that. Well, what kind of people would we be? Well, we would... We, we would know that uh, you, you would look at someone who has the ability to help, has the power to help, doesn't feel like getting involved. Uh, you would call them a coward. Well, if we embrace a biblical view of justice, we understand that God can't simply overlook these things. And so as, we, as you're thinking about this subject of praying, praying righteously, I think these three components are, are components that help go into helping us understand how do you bridge the gap and get to where the martyr saints are. Well, first, you... Understand that in order to pray righteously, you need to be righteous. Second, in order to pray righteously, you need to understand the character of God. And third, in order to pray righteously, you need to embrace a biblical view of justice. Now, uh, in speaking this way, one of the things you realize is, well, what's the result of praying righteously? So here you have a group of individuals who are perfectly righteous, who do understand the uh, character of God, who do understand the biblical uh, view of justice. How does God respond to that? You know, how does God interact with that? Well, we're, we're interacting with the result of praying righteously. It says, uh, after they pray their prayer, how do you think I would respond? I think, you know, the temptation is to think God would say, hey, guys, you know, you're a little too zealous for this. And uh, uh, calm down a little bit. And, you know, I, um, uh, you know, you might be getting a little carried away. Well, that doesn't seem to be the heavenly reaction at all. What is the heavenly reaction? They were each given a white robe and told to rest a little while longer. Right? It's not, hey, that's a totally ghastly, inappropriate thing to say, and I can't believe you said it. And How could you possibly pray that way? And don't you understand uh, the cross? And don't you understand mercy? And don't you understand Jesus? And, you know, what's wrong with you? No, they were each given a white robe, which symbolizes righteousness on their part. And they were told to rest a little longer until the uh, number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete be killed as they himself have been. So not not only are they not condemned for praying that way, they're rewarded for praying that way. You understand? Um, so there's there's no rebuke here. Now, there's many passages in Scripture which would help us to understand why this is a, an appropriate response. One of those would be the Sermon on the Mount, which says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be rebuked, scolded, lectured, Called rude. No, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And here in this passage, we're going to see a picture of that. So what are some lessons we can learn from this? What are some lessons we can learn from this? Well, first, I think it is just as biblical to pray that God will stop the lost as it is to pray that God will save the lost. How do you, how do you pray for Hitler, who's actively in an ongoing fashion seeking to add more Jews to the collection that he's killed. You know, how do you interact with a woman like Hillary Clinton who had originally planned to make Planned Parenthood uh, a centerpiece of her campaign uh, before those videos came out but still 
uh, has made some of the most um, horrible statements related to the subject of abortion that any candidate in U.S. history has made. So how do you how, how do you pray for her? How do you pray for Hitler? Uh, one of the things to realize is it's just as biblical to pray that God stop the loss as it is to pray that God save the loss. How do you pray for Hitler? I think part of you has to say, I, I don't want Hitler in hell. I don't want him in hell. But if he doesn't repent, I pray that you stop him, right? Save him, Lord, so that he can turn from this and face human justice. And maybe escape divine justice. Uh, you know, save him. And if he did, you know that he would he would gladly hand himself over to the executioner's block. Uh, and maybe we can be done with this war that way. Uh, but if you don't, Lord, we need to stop him. Lord, stop him. Uh, you know, because primarily in the first instance, we as we ought to care for Hitler, you also have to kill for the care for the Jews, don't you? Also, have to care for the victims. Uh, similarly, with Hillary, I mean, what do you pray? Lord, help her to get better. Give her a good, nice rest. Don't let anything bad happen to her. Keep her healthy so that she can, you know, add to the number of aborted babies. Is that, is that biblical? Is that righteous? Is that loving to the babies who are being slaughtered, dismembered in their mother's womb? Is that loving? Oh, I, I think one of the things we, we need to learn is it's just as biblical to pray God stop the loss as it is to pray that God save the loss. Uh, secondly, it's not biblical to pray that God bless the loss as an end in of itself. So let me say that again. It's not biblical to pray that God bless the lost as an end in of itself. And I've tried to word that in such a way that avoids... Um, Maybe some of the problems of wording this in another way, but uh, I'll say it again. It's not biblical to pray that God bless the lost as an end in of itself. And so God's blessings on the lost are meant to be blessings which either uh, are means that God uses to uh, restore a saving relationship with him, or they're means of increasing the condemnation of lost. Do you understand? So it could either be uh, you know, God gives extends his common grace to everyone. Uh, so the rain falls on the just and on the unjust. God allows unbelievers to continue for long periods of time in their rebellion against him. Uh, now, the fact that he does that is either a means that uh, is God's kindness that leads them to repentance, or, or it's a means of increasing their condemnation and making their judgment in the last day worse and more severe. So, you know, one of the things to realize is if you're just praying, Lord, give Hitler a long and healthy life, give him a long and healthy life, period, stop, the end. I mean, you could be praying that God would increase his condemnation. Do you understand? So, like if he, he's obviously an enemy of God. There's no evidence that he's a Christian. There's no evidence that he's repenting. You just say, hey, give him a long and healthy life. Well, that just means... Uh, he's increasing his condemnation. What does the Bible say? Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. Uh, if uh, the mighty works were done, uh, that were done in you, were done in like Nineveh, the men of Nineveh would repent, right? As such, it will be more tolerable in the day of judgment for Nineveh, for Sodom and Gomorrah, than it's going to be for you because 
you experienced more of God's grace and experienced more of God's blessings uh, than they did. And you rejected that. You rejected those blessings. So when we, if we're just praying for the lost in of itself as just bless them because we're kind and, and we want to be merciful, uh, you have to understand that that, that may not actually uh, be helpful for them too. Uh, so it's not biblical just to pray God bless the lost. In fact, uh, you know, when evil becomes so, uh, so manifest and uh, recalcitrant and everything else, I mean, when evil just becomes so stubborn and so hardened, uh, for us to just pray God uh, bless, bless that individual, I think would be profoundly unrighteous and unjust and unloving for a vast multitude of people. Uh, please bless the Rwandans and their rape and pillage. Give them long life. Give them health so that they can continue what they're doing. It doesn't meet a biblical view of justice. Uh, so, uh, one, it's just as biblical to pray God stop the loss as it is to pray that God save the loss. Two, it's not biblical to pray that God bless the loss as an end of itself. Now, what are God's blessings uh, to people primarily uh, come? They come to the person and work of Jesus Christ. So one of the things to realize is I've used extreme examples of human evil. Uh, but one thing, one thing we need to interact with is that we have to understand that all of our sin against God is infinitely worse than any human sin can be against other humans. If we understand how holy and righteous God is, uh, you, you know, if you think about the gap between God's righteousness and ours, it's vastly greater than the gap between me and Hitler. I hope, I mean, I hope there's some gap between me and Hitler. But uh, if you're charitable and you imagine that there is, uh, all I'm trying to say is that you think about, I think that, I hope that gap is pretty vast between me and Hitler um, in terms of the practical outworking of the evil. Uh, but then if you, if you think about comparing me to Hitler, I look okay, I think. Now, you compare me to God, there's no comparison. Do you understand? So one of the things to realize is that, you know, I think if you can prove the point that it would be kind of strange to pray that Hitler have a long and healthy life uh, just because I'm nice, uh, then one of the things to realize is that every sinner has offended God in, in, in vastly more significant ways than Hitler has offended other human beings. There's a bigger gap there. And so if, if it's wrong for me to pray for Hitler, you understand, get better and healthy, uh, apart from any knowledge of uh, saving knowledge of the gospel, apart from any reconciled relationship to God, it just make him better. Uh, and then when I'm thinking about praying for unbelievers, I should, I should realize that they have a big problem. And their big problem right now is not the fact that they're sick. I mean, the big problem they have is not the fact right now that they lost their job, um, that they're suffering. That's not their biggest problem. And it doesn't matter how serious their problem is. That pales in comparison to the problem they face if one day they stand before the Lord and do not know him. If one day they stand before the Lord and don't know him, they're going to spend eternity in hell. And so we need to think about this as we think about how we're praying for the lost. It's not biblical just to pray 
as the lost will be blessed as an end in of itself. They have a bigger problem. Uh, and if we spend any time contemplating the nature of, of that problem, then I think we realize that that will help us to prioritize how we're thinking about the situation that they face. Uh, third, the more we grow in practical righteousness, the more we begin to long for justice. So uh, just as we ought to be people who are characterized by mercy, we also ought to be people who realize that justice is a priority and a value to God. Um, just as much as I don't necessarily want Hitler in hell, I don't want Hillary Clinton in hell, I don't want friends in hell, I don't want family members in hell, I don't want anyone in hell, I also have to realize that the more that I grow in righteousness, the more that I long for God to be vindicated. I don't want uh, the world just to make a mockery of the cross. I don't want the cross just to be no big deal, uh, just a small matter. I don't want uh, Jesus' sacrifice to be non-important, trivialized, just made into a joke. Uh, he did for me what I couldn't do. And so if I love Jesus and I love what he did for me, then I don't want that to be trivialized. So the more that I grow in practical righteousness, the more that I see the value of what Jesus did, and I, and I want what Jesus did to be vindicated. I don't particularly like the fact that there's martyred saints in heaven who are beheaded. Do you? I, I don't particularly like that. I don't like the fact that a, a young man can go into a church in South Carolina and shoot seven people. Don't like that. I don't like the fact that uh, the 21st century, there's been more martyrs than in any other century in the entire church. I don't like that. I, I don't like the fact that uh, the Kleins lost their business because they refused to bake a cake for a homosexual wedding. I don't like that. And I shouldn't like that if I love what God loves. And so there ought to be some sort of protectiveness that we have for God's people and God's purposes. If someone were to come in here and unload on you guys, there ought to be a natural affection and love that I would have for you that I would think that's wrong. Uh, and it needs to be fixed. It needs to be fixed at some point. And I'm not going to be the one to fix it, but the, the, the life is precious. It costs something. It's valuable. Uh, so the more we grow in practical righteousness, the more that we should long for justice. But finally, we need to realize that our prayers for justice should always be tempered by an appreciation of mercy. So there's a way to look at these kind of situations... There's a way to look at the world and the sin that's in the world and to want righteousness and to want justice and to want God's people to be vindicated, to want God's character to be vindicated, to want the cross to be vindicated. But yet, uh, in the midst of all that, there should be an appreciation for mercy. Without God's grace, I'd be worse than Hitler. Right? Apart from God's mercy, uh, you know, if he didn't restrain the levels of evil in my own heart, uh, who knows where I would be? Uh, salvation is always a free gift that God gives to men that we cannot earn or deserve in any way. And so I, as a person who understands the nature of my problem, 
namely, on my own, can't do anything to bridge the gap between God's righteousness and my own. I need a substitute. I need a sacrifice. If I understand that, and I understand that it wasn't anything that I did to deserve God to save me or merit that or earn that in any way, then I ought to be a person who loves mercy as well. So there's a way to love mercy and appreciate mercy and also understand that God has not seen fit to save every human being. There, are peop- there will be people in hell. There will be people who experience God's judgment. And it's right that there should be. And so uh, we don't want to be the kinds of people who, when our enemy fall, we're laughing and mocking and pointing and uh, entirely in self-righteousness, uh, longing for that day. Uh, the prospect of, of God's judgment should be a bittersweet thing for Christians. Uh, as you read through the book of Revelations, one of the things you see is that John is given a little book, and that book symbolizes all God's purposes uh, for the world, whether it be salvation or judgment. And he's instructed to put the book in his mouth, and when he does, uh, it, it, the Bible says that it was sweet to taste, but then made his stomach bitter. When we consider God's just judgment, when we consider God's uh, justice, one of the things to realize is that it should always be a bittersweet experience contemplating God's judgment. Uh, there ought to be part of us that longs that God be vindicated, his people be vindicated, his purposes be vindicated, but then there should be part of us which uh, soberly reflect, reflects on what that means. What does that mean for people who are uh, alienated from God? So what do we do when Hillary falls in the van? How should we pray for her? I believe a biblical prayer would be to pray, Lord, save her or stop her. I believe that that would be a biblical prayer. I believe that there's a way to pray that without uh, feeling inappropriate kind of joy at the thought of her being stopped. But at the same time, I think that if we really understand righteousness... Then, and we really value what God values, then as we're interacting with the evil in the world, when we're interacting with unbelievers, one of the things we realize is that there is a significant problem that we face. And it's a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And so as much as we want all the wrongs to be righted uh, and God's character to be vindicated, we also ought to love mercy and and pray that God would extend that mercy to others, knowing that he hasn't seen fit to do so in every case. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this opportunity we have to reflect on your scriptures, Lord. We know that 